This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. This podcast is sponsored by the sour beer drinking folks at Fooder Crafters. They make fooders specifically for breweries and love every brewer they have ever met. Fooder Crafters would like to say thank you to all the good people in this industry. Cheers. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Jeffrey Stuffings, the co-founder of Jester King Brewing here in Austin, Texas. We're here for the Brewers Retreat in Austin, and we're about to get started this afternoon brewing uh, four different small batches with a bunch of celebrity brewers, Henry from Monkish, Trevor from DeGuard, Jeff uh, and Brian, uh, or sorry, Jeff from Jester King and Brian from the Austin Beer Garden, and Ken Grossman of Sierra Nevada is even coming to join us this yeah, afternoon. So it's amazing. <laughs> it's that interesting, strange, wonderful, beautiful experience out here in Texas Hill Country. We've, uh, we've sat down out on some benches next to the, the farm that uh, Jester King has just planted here. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you, Jamie. Always great to talk to you. Absolutely. Um, the brewery has been taking a very agricultural turn as of late. Um, you know, it's uh, interesting for me to watch how you've gone with this. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, why the values that support that, and uh, you've you've been a farmhouse brewery out here in Texas, you know, Hill Country, uh, or a farmhouse-ish brewery making beers in a farmhouse style, um, and you are now uh, what uh, six years into this uh, enterprise, or actually seven eight, seven years, yeah, right? Seven years since opening. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, taking a very solid turn towards the agricultural, planting, uh, uh, buying property, uh, hiring a farmer, planting on your own property, growing ingredients that you'll use to make your beer, uh, adding goats. <laughs> what's uh, what's the, the impetus behind this and the impulse that's driving this uh, largely agricultural shift for the brewery now? Sure. I, I think, you know, it comes back to kind of a, a single word or expression, you know, that being authenticity. And, and it's something that we've really been striving for from the beginning. And I think it's been kind of a, a sliding scale. You know, when we started out, uh, you know, everything was, you know, pure culture, fermentation. And, and by, by no means is that a, a bad thing at all. But as far as making, you know, a authentic farmhouse sale, you know, I would define that as having kind of some interesting yeast character that's driven from, from nature. And so going from you know, filtered well water, pure culture fermentation, uh, to, you know, raw well water, then wild yeast fermentation was kind of that, that, that first major step. And then uh, along the way, we were able to get access to, you know, local grains from our maltster, Blacklands Malt. And then I think the kind of latest major step in that direction has been uh, starting a farm here at, at Jester King, which has taken a long time to do, um, really kind of from a financial perspective. I mean, sure. uh, having enough uh, extra cash to invest in hiring a farmer, buying land, um, you know, right around the time, you know, kind of craft beer, everyone was putting on capacity. We, we were putting money into to, uh, to, to, to land to, to start a farm. Like that kind of really was our big, you know, 2015 expansion project yeah. was to buy 58 acres around us to, to start a farm. And, you know, once we kind of adjusted to the new normal of having, you know, taken on debt to do that, we were able to kind of get to the point where financially we could hire a farmer and start really just going wholesale into it. And, you know, 
not that you must produce all your own ingredients to be an authentic farmhouse brewery. I, I wouldn't say it's the case, but I, I do feel that adds a layer of, of authenticity. And, and so being able with, with time to ultimately have, you know, fruit that we grow on site, uh, produce that we grow on site, um, to a certain extent, you know, grain and knowing full well that we'll always be sourcing our grain, uh, from, but, but from our region now, which, which I think is, is a good thing. And then, uh, ultimately adding hops as well, which is kind of the missing link as far as our goal to ultimately produce what truly is a hundred percent Texas product, uh, or hops and they're quality hops and nothing, you know, against any other prop producer else producer elsewhere, but being able to really just have something that's a hundred percent, a Texas product is, is a big goal of ours. That's that's a really interesting, uh, you know, approach to brewing. A lot of other brewers, you know, that I would talk to have said, we're so glad we don't even do food because we just like to focus on making beer when we're in one business, and that's a brewing business. Um, you're not just running one brewing business. You're also now operating a farm. That, that's a pretty large departure from, a, you know, a, a typical brewing business approach. How do you manage through that? I mean, it has to then at some point pull you way back in to, to stay focused here rather than um, necessarily working on, you know, spreading the, the gospel of your beer around the country. It, it actually has. I mean, I've, I'm traveling a lot less uh, these days than I, I used to. I, uh, you know, kind of got wrapped up in doing events all over the world for, uh, you know, a period of time over, you know, maybe the last three years or so, and really have kind of drawn back from that. And now our, fortunately our, our, our head brewer, Avery and our staff can, you know, take that on, you know, very easily. And, uh, uh, you know, I still, still, uh, whenever there's going to be a collection of a lot of brewers who are friends together, I'll, I'll find a way to get there, even sure, if it's for a sure. day or two, just to keep up with my, my, my wonderful friends in the industry. Right. But uh, aside from that, yeah, I'm spending a lot more uh, time here. And I mean, you know, if you kind of ask me what is the future of Jester King, I would say, you know, it's a place that will be um, kind of a destination for all things fermentation. Um, you know, I... I, I Fermenting grains and, and the love of beer will always be at, at, at the heart of it. It's the thing I'm most attractive to, attracted to in the world of fermentation. But I, seeing the flavors and aromas that can be produced from these microbes applies to all manner of things agricultural and, and seeing what can be done um, with other avenues of fermentation, whether it be meats or cheese or bread or other types of fermented beverages like wine or meat or, or, or cider, uh, something we'd love to take on to, you know, maybe our, you know, legacy of this place out here would be kind of this, you know, kind of ode to all things fermentation with, with the time. What I, what I find most interesting about this is that um, beer at its core is an agricultural product. Right. Um, you know, as with all, you know, packaged goods that, that we may buy in various places, it's easy to separate, you know, when you get your meat wrapped up in a styrofoam tray with a plastic coating on it, or, uh, you know, when you buy a, a, you know, beer in an aluminum can that's sitting in a cooler, it's easy to forget and break that connection between the agriculture that produces that beer but at at the core of it barley and hops uh, are agricultural products and the beer that we make it depends on that Um, and you are building a really tight connection between all of those things out here that really highlights um, that connection in a visceral way where folks can come drink the beer and also see the fields where some of those ingredients are grown. Absolutely. And, and I, I think, you know, one thing that's kind of, kind of interesting and it makes me think of like, you know, I was just listening to um, Joe, Mor- Joe Morfeld from, from uh, Pinehouse just, just talking a moment ago and talking about some of the similarities. Like, you know, 
I would point to, you know, for instance, you know, whether it's, you know, Joe and his beers kind of expressing kind of an agricultural region, you know, presumably, you know, Pacific Northwest or, you know, Live Oak uh, here in Austin, their beers, you know, expressing, you know, some of the character of like, you know, the Czech Republic and, and regions of, of, of Germany. Um, or, you know, I, I think of some of the, uh, the breweries, um, you know, like, like agrarian ales up in, um, I forget what town in Oregon they're in, but, uh, but, you know, kind of being these beers that are expressive of, of place that, um, you know, are kind of more carefully engineered beers. So I don't want to suggest that like, you know, it needs to be this, this wild fermentation to really represent, you know, local agriculture well, um, you know, and, and kind of being inspired by, you know, Franco-Belgian farmhouse sales, uh, you know, I think having that little bit of kind of interesting yeast complexity is kind of key for that, uh, part of uh, sure. those uh, beers inspired from that place. But um, yeah, I, I just think, you know, beers that are expressive of, of, of place and region is, is important. And I love this trend that I've started to see with um, state grown hops yeah. or, uh, or breweries, even uh, on their, their packaging and labeling, talking about the origin of their malt and the origin of their hops, right. um, getting it down to the farm and giving some of those growers credit for uh, you know these ingredients that are really you know at the core of it you know giving giving uh, creating the the paint with which you know the brewers uh, you know paint these beautiful pictures yeah in the in the beer in the, itself um, you know and then that credit is a fascinating one um, uh, I really enjoyed a trip out to Yakima last year to see that and when you see the folks that are raising these hops and the passion and love they have for it and the connection um you know you can't help but be excited about highlighting that connection between the agriculture and the beer right no absolutely um plus you have really really cute baby goats oh <laughs> yeah um yeah the, the the goats um we have a, a, you know, a the farmer that we hired is uh his name is is peppy that's not his real name but everyone calls him peppy yeah. and uh yeah he actually lives in the goat barn with the goats uh <laughs> yeah he's, he's he's very committed and passionate right, to uh to this this, this 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 process and uh um and so um the goats kind of have a, a, a dual purpose uh one is to uh fertilize the uh the farm um you know we do rotation rotational grazing uh we'll be like taking the pen and like every three months, like moving it to a different part of the property to, to fertilize. And then also um, we're currently working on trying to uh, change Texas law to allow us to be uh, able to make uh, uh, cheese out of raw goat's milk hmm. uh, to be able to serve here uh, at, at the brewery, um, both for, uh, you know, being able to buy to take away as well as to use um, with, you know, with, with, with the restaurant here on property. And so um, that's kind of the, Kind of, I was mentioning before, kind of wanting to do all things fermentation. You know, that's that's kind of a first step into that that world. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your move into spontaneous fermentation. You know, when when you launched the brewery, the one of the first things you did was do some native, you know, captures of uh, local microflora that uh, became a part of a, a bigger brewing culture that drives your beer. But one of the big moves that you made was to in those early days, even start brewing spontaneous beer that you knew you're going to sit back and uh, not release for years. Um, how, uh, but having said that, on the spontaneous side, uh, you're a whole lot of latitude further south than typical spontaneous fermentation areas. Um, and so that typical logic around needing to, you know, to uh, uh, be in a much higher latitude where uh, it's colder for more uh 
more days of the year, um, uh, had to be a massive leap for you all to go spend the money, make the batches, throw it in oak, and then just wait and hope you got something that was really good. I mean, um, and you wouldn't know for a year or more, or two years for that matter, whether you got something good. Tell me a little bit about that leap of faith that you took. Sure. Um, you know, part of it was inspired by kind of that, you know, you're told that it won't work. You're told that it can't happen. And, you know, I've heard, had both European and American brewers tell us that like spontaneous fermentation cannot be done uh, in Texas. I've had people say that it can't be done outside of, you know, the, the, the Zena Valley. And, um, you know, I, these microbes are, are, are everywhere around us. I mean, you know, all beer involved mixed cultures historically. And, uh, you know, so... I, I just was a little skeptical that, that these beers could not be made outside of kind of this, you know, traditional region of, of, of Europe uh, or in further northern latitudes of the United States. And, you know, being in the hill country, we get pretty variable weather and we can have cold snaps. And, you know, it snowed three times this past mm. winter here in Texas. And so, um, you know, I was just really, I don't know, a combination of just maybe just like pride or ego being told like, you know, it won't work. <laughs> And then, uh, and also, you know, just being very inspired by, you know, Lambic and, uh, you know, I visited Cantillon for the first time in 2012 and just, you know, it was just kind of like this surreal mystifying experience to see that and wanting to see if it would work in Texas and already seeing that, you know, Allagash had, had done, uh, you know, blends of spontaneously fermented beer that I thought was every bit as good as Goose and, and that's, you know, being done at least stateside. I'm like, surely this has a chance in, in, in Texas, but when the beer actually did start to ferment out well, it really was just like one of those moments like, you know, um, you know, our, our head brewer, you know, Garrett uh, Crowell and I at the time were just like, like hugging each other. Like we couldn't believe like, you know, this even worked in, 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 in Texas. Um, and then psychologically speaking, I mean, you can pull those samples and it, it just may be awful and awful and awful and awful for months and months and months and months. And then like, at what point did you, did you taste that and say, oh, shit, we have something good here. Yeah, you, you know, uh, we didn't have to wait quite as long as uh, as I anticipated. I would say around the six-month mark. Um, it started, it was rough around the edges and still, like, too, like, kind of bitter and had some weird uh, mouthfeel, but, like, the aromatics were there and the beer hadn't totally gone off the, gone off the rails. And just with our experience with barrel-aged mixed culture fermentation, like, we had enough of a grasp of where the beer was and where it was probably going to go mm-hmm. that we felt we, we had something. Um, it was, it was, I guess the beer, and this might sound odd in the context of spontaneous fermentation, but the beer was like clean enough at, at that point where yeah. like, this is probably going to ferment out just fine. Huh. Um, and so, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of the, you know, the, the sign that, you know, this is going to work here. And that was, that was pretty, pretty special, uh, for, for us to, to observe that. And, and then, you know, just in general, like the one thing I'd say about spontaneous fermentation, like as far as creating something that's a product of, you know, place and time, it's kind of the ultimate cross section where that one night is going to produce a certain beer never to be cre- recreated again. And, you know, it's just very exciting to me just to see what, what nature can produce. Um, you know, I'm, I'm all for, you know, beers that are very like carefully, technically precise and crafted. I love those beers, but I also love beers that are just like, ex- just, just a product of, the role of the dice of nature. And that's, that's fun to kind of, uh, you know, I, I had a musician once come up to, uh, to me and, and said, you know, he's a scholar of the, the musician, John Cage, who I hadn't heard of. And, 
he said that like Cage was like this like middle ground between like the intentional and the avant-garde. Like he would like play the same notes or, or attempt to, but do so on like mu- musical equipment that was like just kind of some way faulty or or uh, would would kind of create this natural variation where that's kind of what we do. Like our recipes very seldom ever change, but the ingredients and the microflora that goes into them just kind of takes the beer in its own direction. So, you know, it's not intentionally variable. It's certainly not carefully, technically precise. It's just kind of this, this middle ground, which, which I don't know, I, I, has always appealed to, to us. That seems to me a very wine-like approach that, uh, you know, there is vintage difference from year to year and that variety and that change, you know, actually kind of flies in the face of this brewing monocultural idea that uh, we've had where everything needs to be perfect and the exact same and, and repeatable, you know, time and time again. Um, but, you know, having said that in this kind of world of beverages, you know, wine has, has created this idea that there is variation year to year and that that's okay. And that's something that we can celebrate. It is interesting to see beer embracing that same kind of mentality. It, it is. Um, I, when you're asking that, I couldn't help but thinking of, um, you know, I, I had the, you know, uh, great, great, uh, fortuitous nature to go down to, to Chile uh, for the Copa de Cerveza of the Americas. It was kind of like the Craft Brewers Conference of uh, of South America, and uh, you know they took the brewers who were there uh, out to a winery and. I remember the winemaker there, uh, it just was like, you know, Britannomyces, it's a contaminant. Like, it cannot be brought into my winery. You know, it's, it, it, it makes bad wine. And, you know, I'm thinking this is something that exists, like, naturally on the skin of the grapes. Like, and, you know, I, I, granted, I mean, if, if you want to, you know, select and kind of uh, circumvent nature to create something that's that's a little more intentional, great, wonderful. I'm not knocking that. But, you know, as far as something that, you know, is very much supposed to be a product of, of agriculture, kind of embracing uh, all of the different microbes and not you know, specifically selecting, I think is very key. And, you know, when I see, uh, you know, something marketed as a farmhouse ale that was, you know, fermented with a pure culture and maybe has some spices added to it to kind of mimic complexity and ferments dry in three weeks, then it's force carbonated and has a label with a tractor on it or a guy in a straw hat. I'm like, that's just not a product of agriculture. Like, and so, you know, again, it's not better or worse, but it's different. But if you're going to say like, it, it's a product of, it's a farmhouse sale, like I, th- I think it really needs to incorporate, you know, not just local agriculture, but also local microflora. Uh, I mean, people will disagree with that, but I mean, it's just kind of how I, <laughs> I feel about it. You do uh, have some opinions that tend to be polarizing <laughs> at times. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so, and, and maybe we should talk about that a little bit. Uh, last year or the year before you, you started on a, a program to you know build some uh, structure around the idea of uh, beer made in that lambic and goose tradition um, it came from a good place and a desire to differentiate you know because within American brewers uh, and the way that you know American brewers produce beer uh, they're very diverse methods for creating beers that are wild and sour and funky um, some of those are very traditionally inspired. Some of those are not traditionally inspired at all. Um, all are valid methods. You know, there's no, right. no such thing as an invalid method of brewing unless it's not food safe totally um, and puts people in some sort of jeopardy. But, um, but having said that, you know, when you, um, when you're, you know, pitching a culture and calling it a spontaneous beer, then that's a strange, you know, place to be. Um, but there are certainly brewers in the United States that are doing that, um, you know, and that kind of flies in the face of some of that spontaneous, you know, tradition and what, you know, what consumers expect around that. Um, 
you know, you embarked on a program to try to, you know, create some guidelines for what we call those, you know, beers that are made in the, the goose and Lambic tradition. Um, and it ended up creating some controversy. Right. It did. Um, yeah, I mean, we um, the first uh, three-year blend of spontaneously fermented beer we called, you know, Method Goose in reference to um, kind of taking a, a cue from like Method Champenois of just like referring to a process, but not a re- not a, a place, a region. Like, you know, we've been very upfront that you know this is not lambic and it's not you know beer that comes from uh, you know the Zena Valley and and or Brussels and um, and then uh, you know unfortunately uh, you know that kind of created uh, some backlash from 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 Hural. and I, I get where they're coming from I think so Hural, the artisanal lambic maker group in Belgium yes yes I mean you know through the process of kind of having you know some some disagreement with them uh, I got a chance to talk to them quite extensively and you know I think you know they and I, I totally understand where they're coming from they see it as like you know this is our thing we were doing it before it was cool you know like this is like you know what my father and my grandfather and like this is our livelihood and, you know, they saw, I think, Jester King as kind of trying to, like, co-opt that tradition or, like, try to, like, I think they saw us as kind of, like, you know, interlopers seeking to, like, steal what they had created. And, you know, who we worked with and kind of coming up on, like, you know, Method Goose was, was, was Jean from Cantillon, who knows us very well. And we've known him. And, like, he sure. has, he understands, like, where we're coming from. And, you know, I don't think I... I know I did not effectively. He's also not a member of Horal. <laughs> that too, yeah. And so, um, you know, I think I had not really like made our intentions well enough known, and, and kind of who we were and what we're why we're going about it. And you know, I think through that process, and I, I shared with them. And I think you know, kind of in talking to Horal, like the minute the light kind of went off with them is when I told them like we did it because no one said we could. You know, that was you know the kind of that challenge. Like you can't make you know lambics inspired beer in, in, in Texas uh, and, you know, trying to see if we could was a challenge. And I think that that kind of resonated with them to, to kind of understand our motivation. And, and then also, you know, I, I think they appreciate, you know, trying to make beer that's a product of place. And I'm sure, you know, when you put our beer side by side with theirs, you know, they, they would say it's, it's quite, quite different. Um, from a beer perspective, I mean, it is an interesting thing. Like, you know, we call a Pilsner a Pilsner. And right. there doesn't seem to be any, you know, cultural problem with, uh, you, know, you know, those beer makers in, in Pilsen, the Czech Republic, about, you know, calling those beers that. We call Kolsch as Kolsch. Right. Um, and we're not brewing in, in, you know, Köln, Germany. So, um, you know, styles within our, our world of beer, as Americans understand beer and beer styles, do, you know, tend to talk about the origin of, of where those beers come from. Even if they're not made in that place now, we try to append, you know, you know, Kolsch style ale or Pilsner style beer because obviously they're not brewed in that place. Um, and that's common for Americans, but I, I guess the, the Europeans have a little tighter uh, focus on their control of that appellation. Yeah. I mean, when, when the kind of controversy started, you know, happening, um, there were certainly plenty of people encouraging us just to, you know, just say, you know, to you know, give them the figurative middle finger and just like move on. Um, but I mean, I, I, one of our first rules of business here, Jester King, is like, you know, do no harm. And, uh, you know, I could tell you know, these people were, were very upset and, and felt offended and that their tradition was being co-opted. And so, you know, which was obviously never our tent, intent. And I felt like, like if we had tried to create like uh, a category for lambic inspired beer in the United States that ultimately made a number of the traditional producers upset, then we will have failed in our, 
our, our, our right. mission. Right. So um, at this point, you know, instead of calling, you know, our spontaneously fermented beer, you know, goose, we'll simply call it a, you know, a, a three-year blend and refer to, you know, making it in a traditional method. And, you know, that, that seems to have uh, kind of quelled any uh, ill feelings. And um, um, and then ultimately, you know, I think we're, we're some some kind of misinterpretation occurs is like, you know, people think we're trying to like clone Lambic and well, yes, our beer has been inspired by that tradition. Like that's never been the in- intent. We're trying to make something that's, you know, unique to, to our place and time. And I, I think, you know, when a lot of people, I felt kind of felt, you know, our motivation was, was not, um, what it truly is. I felt kind of called to react in somewhat of a opposite direction just just being very clear like no we're, we're not trying to just like you know clone you know bone goose we're, we're trying to make something that's unique to here and you know when it comes to something as simple as, as spontaneous fermentation uh i don't obviously for something like that i don't think anyone on earth could ever say like well that's our thing you know all beer was spontaneously fermented at a time, you know, all beer at a time was a product of, of wild microorganisms. So, you know, I, I think, you know, we kind of entered that, 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 that world and, and, uh, you know, uh, through, through, I think my own kind of tr- strategic and planning failures, you know, it kind of didn't go well. And, and now, um, I think that, you know, there's enough, I think there's enough awareness of, of what we're trying to do and what we're trying to do that, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll all be okay. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm not as passionate about the terminology as I, as I was. And, you know, now going back to the previous topic, you know, I'm far more passionate about, you know, starting our own farm and, and uh, really just continuing to make sure this is a, a special place, especially as Austin grows around us and, and it becomes less of a, a rural environment. And, uh, you know, at least having the area that we, uh, that we own, you know, being a place that's preserved for preservation and agriculture. For sure. Let's talk a little bit about your spontaneous, you know, process. Um, inoculation from your cool ship, uh, all yeast from that uh, is coming from that process. You're, you're uh, taking beer and putting it into completely clean barrels, steamed or, or otherwise cleaned, and not picking up uh, any additional culture from the wood itself or from, you know, previous uh, stuff that's been in there. So, you know, I, a question I had going into making spontaneously fermented beers was like how much of the microflora is coming from the wood and how much right. is coming from the sure. cool ship. And, you know, I mentioned this to the, to the group earlier today, like, you know, I, we filled a couple barrels in 2013 um, that, um, you know, had, had, had not passed through the cool ship and, you know, were in barrels that had been steamed. And those barrels took um, about three months to start fermenting. So the microbes that were in the wood presumably ultimately caused that beer to ferment out. And, and it actually ended up being fairly good beer. Mm. Um, whereas the barrels that had passed through the cool ship started fermenting within within days. Really mm. like within three to five days, everything had, had kicked off. So that suggested to me that the microbes driving spontaneous fermentation are what are collected in the cool ship and are not what is kind of residual in 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 in, in, in the wood. Like sure. for instance, I mean if you just took uh, on a homebrewing level, if you just boiled some words and put it into a carboy and put in, uh, an airlock on it, I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't remain, you know, just totally just un, you know, unspoiled wort for forever. It would start fermenting right. with time. So, can you create a totally blank slate with the barrels? No. But I think essentially by running a beer through a cool ship, you are kind of 
you know, indirectly pitching yeast. And yeah. so I think, again, that's what's driving the, yeah. the ship. Because yeah. lambic makers themselves have a whole variety of, of uh, you know, processes for, for cleaning their barrels from chains to, to hot rinse to steam. And, uh, you know, and there's no real, you know, uh, code for how they go do that and you know certainly um you know that range of methods is uh, you all with the method traditional and, uh, and approach do specify you know clean barrels you know that aren't going to pick up a lot of that culture um which uh, you know some lambic makers do you know dogmatically adhere to that and others really don't yeah um yeah i mean i you know i i to be totally honest, like I don't, I just don't, I don't care. Yeah. So, like whatever they want to do. Like fair enough, yeah. fair enough. <laughs> so um, let's talk. How do you guide some of that culture along? You know, you you certainly use hopping rates to you know to manipulate some of the acidity in the beer. Um, you know, you 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 use long boils to you know, kind of build some of that caramelization that becomes you know characteristic of of spontaneous beers. Um, but tell me a little bit about that recipe development and then some of the techniques that you use that you found that uh, have helped you produce better beer. Sure, uh, hopping rates have been really key, uh, not just for spontaneous fermentations, but uh, our, our stainless steel mixed culture fermentations mm-hmm. as well. Um, you know. For instance, you know, one of uh, our biggest inspirations would be like like Tirier Extra, um, which is just this beautiful golden Belgian pale or Belgian saison, and you know, it's it's pretty bitter. I think, you know, I I, I feel like, um, you know, I love New England IPA. I love, uh, you know, you're drinking just, one right now. I'm drinking from, one right uh, now. Pine House Pizza. Yeah. yeah, I um, I but I do feel like um, like bitterness is 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 something that needs to be like fought for a little bit in 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 beer. I mean, you know, again, some of my favorite beers, uh, whether it be you know from the German tradition or the uh, Belgian tradition, are beers that are fairly bitter, and uh, you know, like like Duranc XX Bitter is you know one of those those beers, or you know. Uh, Zinnabir from, you know, De La Seine. Yeah. yeah uh, just, like, I, I think that a lot of people think you hear bitter and you kind of this like negative reaction. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like, and then you look at kind of it's like. It's almost a human reaction though. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, the human palate is kind of built to, to resist that idea of bitter to some degree. And so yeah. it becomes a learned taste. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, my, my, my kids, they hate bitter. They hate spicy. So I think it is kind of somewhat of a acquired uh, taste. And, you know, kind of removing, you know, bitterness from, like, India Pale Ale. And, and you know, again, I, I like the juicy IPAs. They're great. I drink them a lot. But, like, I still want, you know, uh, kind of, you know, your more classic kind of, like, West Coast. Or even or even English, even though they're not quite as bitter. But still, like, you know, your English. Even, I, yeah. even with the hazy beers, you know, mm-hmm. those that finish with a little bit of a bitter finish to, yeah. uh, you know, certainly help cleanse that palate and sweep some of that sweetness uh, off your palate to uh, allow you to take another sip and drink another beer, which, you know, that's generally if we're going to drink one, we want to drink two. So uh, exactly. making them a little more drinkable is a, is a nice thing. Henry from Monkish yesterday was talking about his approach on that. Oh, good. And, uh, you know, his certainly have a little bit more of a, a bitter West Coast backing to them, even though they're they're hazy, which you know, aids that kind of drinkability. Yeah, I, I think that, that to my palate, I think that's, that's wonderful. And then the other part of that would be in the context of the beers that we make, uh, keeping the acidity balanced. Um, you know, I think, and, and I'm getting, I mentioned this earlier, but like, uh, I think the biggest flaw in American sour beer over the last four or five years has been like 
overdone acid. Yeah. Um, where it's just like so harsh that it's it's hard to drink uh, very much. And you know, drinkable beer is is something. You know, I I learned to brew by listening to um, you know people like you know John Palmer and uh, Jamil Zanishev, You know, who and I was heretic in California, and like you know they would constantly preach the gospel of like just make it make it drinkable you know right and right. uh you know the big beer kind of co-opted that for a period of time with like you know the difference is drinkability i think that was the bud light tag for for a couple of years uh one of their marketing campaigns but i mean technically they got it right i mean yeah it should it should be uh, drinkable uh, not to suggest that you know adjunct lager is the only drinkable style of course that, that, that's false but um so how do we do that um well, blending is key. Um, you know, quality fermentation is key, but hopping rates is is a huge part of that. And you know, a lot of our beers tend to finish at like twenty to thirty five IBU, and for mm. like a quote unquote like sour beer, that's quite high. But it's just because we want kind of fairly mild, quenching acidity, and not have acidity be the driver or the star of the show. Thank you for saying that. I think that's uh, one of the biggest takeaways for American sour beer makers today, um, and it's certainly what we find in that. That uh, you know there are it, there's almost a regionalization to some of that desire for massive acidity. You know, it seems that uh, California tends to attract big big folks love love that kind of acid. Um, and I've certainly talked to you know a number of brewers there who have who make those beers. And have, have said it, you know, to me again off the record that uh, they wish they could make more subtle beers. Huh. But there's almost a consumer desire and demand for higher levels of acidity. Uh, it's almost, you know, to some degree within you know consumer circles that, uh, in the same way that they were, you know, folks, you know, beer buyers were searching for more and more, you know, bigger and bigger, more IBUs in their beer. Now they're, you know, some those sour beer fans are searching for more and more, uh, you know, acidity in their beer as, as some sort of machismo. I can drink the most most acidic beer, and you know, now today if you you ask Henry about uh, hazy IPAs, they're looking for more and more Plato's in those, uh, you know, finished beers and sweeter and sweeter. Really? You know, and so there there seems to be it seems to be that we have a hard time within the world of beer. Um, Finding, you know, and celebrating that that concept of nuance and balance, where all of these things are uh, are existing in a nice tension with each other. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't help but think, of, you know, just like what you're after commercially. I mean, you know, if it's if it's something where you're trying to appeal to like a, a sweeter, more like mass producing. Granted, you know, very few craft breweries I ever put at the you know level of barrelage where it's kind of you know mass produced. But like I've I feel like, you know, I always come back to like the, you know, mantra of like, I read an article when I was starting this place called like, you know, a thousand true fans, meaning that like, if you can find like a thousand people who are like really into what you do, it was in the context of music, like buy all of your albums, like just appreciate who you are for who you are, you know, you can make a living at, at that. And, you know, we make 2000 barrels, like we don't have to cater, we don't have to do anything resembling, you know, back sweetening or, 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 or how, I, don't, I wouldn't even know how to make our beer like not fully uh, sorry fully attenuated so I mean I don't know I just like it just really kind of is like nails on a chalkboard for me to hear like you know we're gonna like intentionally make our beer finish sweeter to appeal to like a like a, a, a ticker culture or like you know this kind of culture of like you know what presented the best in like a you know a half ounce pour at a bottle share like I just don't 
care. Like I want people to drink my beer and do so under a live oak tree and have, you know, fun with it and enjoy uh, conversation, which is and human interaction, which is the whole point of alcohol in the first place is to, you know, make it easier for humans to have a good time together. So I don't know, just that stuff just, I, it's never been a popularity contest for us. I mean, granted we have to make a living, but like fortunately, you know, 2000 barrels a year um, is not a hard sell and, you know, selling most of it on site, it's at such a margin where we don't have to cater to anybody and can stand for our own principles. Not that they're right or wrong. They're just what we believe in. So I don't know. I find that really disheartening to like, we're going to make IPA sweeter for like, you know, some dude reviewing it on at a bottle share. That's an interesting point you bring up. And then that mode of, of consumption and how beers are consumed, I think, uh, yeah, is a curious one. And, and you know, we, we see it all the time. Like, oh, my buddies and I got together and we drank, you know, 12 of these and then we ranked them. Um, you know, and that's, that's, you know, when you put this kind of effort into seeking out beer from around the country, trading for it and waiting in lines for it and everything else, you know, you, you, you feel like there is a weight to that from, a, from that consumer perspective and that you want to, you know, you're not going to drink one of those bottles by yourself. Um, but it becomes a, a tough thing from a brewer perspective for you to, you know, try to make beers that get consumed, you know, with where people can drink an entire glass of it and, you know, ponder it, sit with it, or even not ponder right. it. And, uh, you know, spend time with their friends as they share something that's just delicious to drink. Um, you know, from a commercial perspective, like, you know, you, you can't tell people how they can drink your beers, whether they can bottle share with them. Sure. Um, you know, but, but how do you try to, you know, get that into the right place so people can enjoy it in the way that you intend for them to? Yeah, I, I think that the taproom model is, is the answer. And I know we're not alone in that. And I mean, mm-hmm. if you look, listen to like, you know, you know, Bart Watson at the VA, like, the, yeah. you know, he talks about how, you know, a lot of the growth you're seeing is, is from the, you know, on-site taproom experience. And, and, you know, that's something we strive for here as, as well. And, you know, fortunately we can sell two thirds of our beer, uh, at, at the brewery. And, um, and you've consciously pulled that back and done less distribution in order to sell more beer here. Yeah. I hope we can get to 85%. Yeah. I mean, that's really what we're, we're striving for even more, uh, on-site sales with, with time as you know, the area grows around us. And, and you'll just to... make it more rare because of that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the irony. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess, um, you know, uh, there was a period of time when like, you know, we'd be at a beer festival and, you know, I'm sitting there behind our booth and I'm watching, you know, like, you know, some of my favorite farmhouse sale producers, you know, like, like side project and perennial and Hill Farmstead, like, you know, people just like running past their booths to get, you know, the latest, you know, adjunct stout and, and, you know, it, it's fine. Whatever people are happy with, I don't care, but, um, it's just kind of just funny to see that, uh, occurring and, and, uh, fortunately, like I just, uh, I, I guess, you know, I guess there is like, you know, be perfectly transparent. Like there probably is some like ego and within like, you know, just do, do people like line up to, to come seek your beer. And, you know, we had our release of a beer called Elements of Composition, which was, um, a blend of beer from Degard, Sante Darius and, and, and us and, you know, totally unfruited. And yeah, it had an amazing response. It was like lousy 40 degree weather and was like misting out and um you know people were just still really really geeked to show up early and make sure they got you know a, a, a bottle of that beer and i was like wow you know it's a it's a beer that you know doesn't have you know a whole lot of adjunct ingredients is unfruited and you know it's just this thing that i think is like very subtle and balanced and and people you know cared about it which was kind of the heart a heartening thing to 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 see um but even if even if they don't i, I would say that the good thing is like 
you know, when I talk to our distributor locally who represents like the Shelton Brothers portfolio in, in Texas and, you know, hearing about, you know, again, some of those breweries inspired us like, you know, like Duronk and, and, and De La Seine and like and Jolly Pumpkin. And, you know, those, those beers do quite well in our state, even if they're not, mm. you know, the ones that are, you know, just over the top uh, hyped. Um, so... I don't know. I think, you know, I, I think like a lot of things, you know, what do they say in politics? It's like, you know, the, the, the vocal minority, uh, you know, so I think, you know, some of the, the fireworks involved in beer draw a lot of uh, attention and, and, and that's fine. But, you know, when it comes to just beer for drinking, I, I still feel like there's a, a strong audience uh, for that and, and probably one that, you know, is very much increasing as, as more and more people, you know, kind of drift away from, from macro lager. Well, you, you've found a way to make some interesting and uh, curiously drinkable beers out of strange and uh, uh, unsuspecting ingredients. I've just finished about a half a bottle here of uh, Obsession, a collaboration beer that's, uh, what, 100% spontaneously fermented that you made with Scratch Brewing, uh, Aaron and Marika, you know, from Scratch. And uh, it is, despite being a, well, I shouldn't say despite, I'd say <laughs> that's all right. uh, as a result of being a foraged beer, which, ha- you know, ha- uh, has certain connotations that come with it. Uh, it is, you know, mildly sweet and, uh, or at least presents that way and remarkably drinkable. Yeah. I, I think one thing that kind of, um, helped us with that is that it was a winter, uh, harvest of, of forged ingredients. So there was kind of a natural kind of drying, uh, process that went on with the, you know, the fallen leaves and the spice bush and mm-hmm. grapevine and sassafras, um, where I feel like some forged beers I drink have like a little bit more, uh, like kind of like green or like chlorophyll character that, that sometimes can be a turnoff. And, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I'll say guilty as charged with, you know, some of our forged beers. I think I've had a little bit too much of like a, a green character. So in some way kind of doing like a winter foraging, I think lent it to be kind of a, a more drinkable beer and, and one that I, I really enjoy despite having some kind of somewhat like weird, like winter green type of uh, flavors. Um, it's still something that I, I, yeah, I could drink, you know, a bottle or two my, my, myself. Um, and then just bring with scratch. I mean, gosh, um, I mean, I, I just think the world of them as far as, you know, just being good people, making something that's just such an amazing product of place and doing it in like, as authentic of a manner as any brewery could do, in my opinion. So, um, yeah, it was it was pretty special to get to brew with, with 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 Marka and, and Aaron. They're 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 the real deal, for sure. So, you're also a small business owner in addition to being a brewer. Um, from that perspective, what keeps you up at night? Oh, ha. you know, it, yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, I, I I you know I got into. Uh, opening a brew of my brother because you know we, we loved beer and we wanted to make it and, and and drink it and just talk beer all day and geek out about beer and you know it, it, it's something we still still love to do but you know you realize like uh anything that that is going to be worthwhile is is other than you know being like hold up if you know like a uh, I don't know. I suppose if you're like a writer or some professions you still can you know kind of be totally by yourself but I mean I feel like any collection of people that comes together is going to take an enormous amount of energy to kind of get everyone inspired and, and pulling in the same direction. Like you realize real quick that you can try to do the work of two people, but you'll never be two people. And if you can only kind of have success by your ability to kind of motivate and inspire others to, to kind of carry out your, your, your vision. And so trying to build like a, a culture where people are motivated to, um, you know, 
bring our philosophy, you know, to others is, is it been very fulfilling, but yeah, what an enormous, uh, headache on many levels. <laughs> like, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm like, uh, and I couldn't help but thinking, you know, like, uh, Walt was right. Like, he just, <laughs> let's just give up on all this. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's, I quickly rebound from those you're days. Gonna, you're, so you're going to sell the ABI, huh, Jeff? <laughs> no, no. Anyway, but, uh, no, but, but you have many of those days when it's just like, oh gosh. Um, but, um, but then ultimately like on those good days, it's just like, so 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 much more fulfilling uh yeah. to yeah. uh you know see a collection of, of of people you know create something special that uh you know it, it you know i i think i'd get bored very very quickly uh not kind of getting to be part of this and and, and the other thing is like it grows past you where like you know i recognize and it's obviously honestly kind of been more like a, a motivating factor where you like you feel you recognize that like the business is like morphed into something far greater than yourself yourself and realize that like no one is is bigger than that 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 cohesive you know whole that that has been 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 created and so um yeah that that that, that kind of responsibility that comes with that is is, is very motivating as as well fantastic so if people want to learn more about Jester King, you have a fantastic new website, huh? Oh, yeah. It, we entered the 21st century now with our, our website. Uh, yeah. Um, that was, uh, you know, one of those things that, uh, you know, getting the brewery off the ground, we put like $100 into getting a <laughs> sure, website. Sure, and so, sure. uh, And then it never really gotten around to, um, you know, it was like on a perpetual to-do list item that like never got done. But uh, thankfully, you know, we're at the point now where there's other really talented people here. So that got delegated. And sure enough, once that happened, it was done in like you know, <laughs> three months. And so hey, where, where can people find you then? Uh, same, same URL, just uh, jesterkingbrewery.com. Cool. Cool. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me on the craft beer and brewing podcast. It is a beautiful location out here in the Texas Hill country. I've been drinking your beer for years and this is my first visit to the brewery. And, uh, you know, it's a mildly spiritual experience just from a, a fanatic standpoint. And, and uh, I really appreciate being able to talk to you out here right next to your farm oh. uh, on your own property. Wonderful thing that you're doing here. Thank you so much. Thank and, you, Jamie. Uh, we're going to brew some beer this afternoon. Awesome. Appreciate that. Thanks, Thanks so a lot. Much. Cheers. This podcast is sponsored by the sour beer drinking folks at Fooder Crafters. They make fooders specifically for breweries and love every brewer they have ever met. Fooder Crafters would like to say thank you to all the good people in this industry. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.